If you have your Bible, turn with me, if you will, to Galatians chapter 4. At this time of year, we hear a lot about the Christmas spirit. Uh, so I want to ask you, what, what is the Christmas spirit? Or even better, who is the Christmas spirit? I was thinking about that this week in the light of our text, and so I just Googled, what is the Christmas spirit? Well, I was a little shocked by where it took me. Uh, it took me to the website of a magazine called Scientific American. And I thought that's not exactly where I thought I would be led to. But anyway, Scientific American said, there are three things that define the Christmas spirit. Number one is a specter, really a ghost. And it went on to talk about Dickens' classic, a Christmas carol, and the ghost of Christmas past and present and future, and how really this was defining what the Christmas spirit is not. It's not being like Ebenezer Scrooge. It's not being stingy and not wanting the, the poor to be helped. So that was the first way they defined the Christmas spirit. The second, as you might have guessed, was Santa Claus, uh, St. Nicholas, who goes around the world and giving toys to children all over the world, uh, except those who are too poor to get them. But anyway, uh, the third one was Christmas decorations, poinsettias and lights and all of that. Now, you may think of different things when you think about the Christmas spirit, but it's not any of those. As a matter of fact, almost everything that you see on TV and read in the newspaper about the Christmas spirit is wrong. The end message of the Christmas spirit is almost always wrong. Christmas and the Christmas spirit is not about giving gifts. It's not about colored lights. It's not about uh, Santa Claus. It's not about Hallmark movies. It's not any of those things. In the Christmas story, God is taking steps to save us, to make us sons, to make us children of God rather than slaves to sin and the law. So I want to look at two things this morning and tell you who the Christmas spirit is and how you may have, how you may possess the Christmas spirit. The first thing is the Christmas story, and that is God sends his son, to make us sons. Now, in the book of Galatians, remember, Paul is arguing for justification by faith alone. And he is debating with a group called the Judaizers who said that in order to be saved, you have to keep the law of God. And so Paul has already said back in chapter 3 that before Christ came, before faith came, we were held captive under the law as, uh, as being under a, a guardian. And that's how he starts chapter 4, really. Uh, he says that an heir, uh, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. So you have a young man who uh, inherits his father's estate. He's eight or nine years old. And he has an estate, and it's got vast lands and castles. But 
he is under a guardian, what was called then a pedagogue. And Paul is saying that the differentiation between him and a slave is not much different. The young master is told when to get up, what to study, what to eat, when to go to bed, who he can see, who he can't, in much the same way that a slave is. So Paul says that uh, before faith came, we were under the guardian of the law. The guardian was like an elementary school. The law was like an elementary school for God's people. Now, what did it teach us? Number one, that God is absolutely holy. The purpose of God's law is to show us the holiness of God. The second purpose of the law was to show us we can't keep it. There's no way that we can keep the law of God. Because if you break the law of God in one point, you've broken all of it, James says. If you break any one law, you've broken it all. You see, so even though we like to think of ourselves as keepers of the law and of good people, the truth of the matter is we're not. For instance, how many of you ever in your life told a lie, even a little white lie, or cheated on a test? Raise your hand. Anybody, all of you ever done that? All right? That's everybody, everybody who didn't raise your hand, you're lying. Okay, number two, how many of you ever took anything? Somebody else's answer off the test. Piece of bubble gum out of a store. Raise your hand. Say, that's all of you again. So all of you dressed up in your finery look like fine, upstanding people. And the truth of the matter is you're a bunch of liars and thieves. So in addition to being liars and thieves, that would make us also blasphemers. That would make us idolaters. That would make us adulterers. That would make us covetous. Because to offend the law at any one point is to break all of it. The law teaches us that we cannot keep it. And that we are in bondage to sin. We were slaves to sin. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 8. Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. So Jesus says that everyone is a slave to sin. Paul says the same thing when he says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So we were all in bondage to sin. What was God's answer to that? He sends the law of God, but the law could not save because man cannot keep the law. Because man is depraved. He is born a sinner, David says, and he sins because he's a sinner. You know, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We're born that way. It comes natural. Any of you who have children know that you did not have to teach your children to sin. You have to teach them to tie their shoes. You have to teach them to tell time. But you don't have to teach them to lie or cheat or steal or whine when they don't get what they want. It just comes natural. All of us are that way. All of us are sinners. So what is the answer? What does God do in order 
to set us free from the slavery of sin and to make us sons. He tells us that in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those that were under the law. So notice the time of his coming. There are various factors at work in the history of the world that God was sovereignly arranging the time for Jesus to come. Religiously, for instance. After the Babylonian captivity, the Jews gave up the idolatry that had characterized them from the time of the Exodus. There was also the rise of the synagogue system, where there, if there were ten families uh, in a town or a city, there would be a synagogue, a place to teach the law. Those synagogues enabled the gospel to be spread around the Jewish world much more quickly than it would have, would have been were they not in place. Culturally, Alexander the Great had conquered almost all of the known world by about 200 years before the birth of Christ. Alexander had vast armies. He wanted to be able to give an order and everybody in his army understand it. And so he had his scholars come up with uh, a, a, a new language, not a new language, but a, rather than classical Greek, something that was called Koine Greek, common Greek, so that everybody spoke more or less the same language. They understood it. That facilitated the scriptures being written in a language that the people could understand. Politically, the Roman Empire ruled the world. And the Roman Empire enforced by their might peace, what was called then the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. People were not at war with one another. They were under subjection to the Romans, but there was peace. The Romans also built a vast system of roads that enabled the disciples and the apostles to take the gospel to the, to the ends of the earth. So we see the timing of Christ's coming here. Notice the origin of his coming. God sent. God sent forth his son. This emphasizes what we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks. That Jesus Christ was God come to the flesh. God sent him. That means that Jesus existed before he was born as a baby in Bethlehem. He is the eternal word, the eternal God. God sent his son to accomplish the redemption. He sent God the son because he was the only one qualified to do the job. Notice in this passage of Scripture, we're going to find all of the Holy Trinity. God the Father sends God the Son. And then God the Holy Spirit is sent into our hearts that we may cry, Abba, Father. Jesus Christ is fully God. He's sent from the Father. But notice this. He is born of a woman. That speaks of the humanity of Christ. Jesus is fully God. He is fully man. He is born under the law. He was born of a Jewish mother 
into, a, into the Jewish nation. Therefore, he was subject to the Jewish law. And throughout his life, he submitted to all the requirements of the law. And unlike us, Jesus Christ kept the law of God perfectly. He never violated a commandment of God's law. He not only did not break the law, the negative, but he kept the law positively. He kept all of the feast. He studied the scriptures. He did everything that the law demands. He kept the law perfectly. He submitted to all of its requirements and kept it. He loved God with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his mind, and all of his strength. Every moment of his existence. And he loved his neighbor as himself, and so he kept all of the Ten Commandments. Those relating to God in the first table, those relating to man in the second. Why? What was his purpose? Why did he do that? Why did Jesus Christ keep the law? Why did he fulfill all righteousness in order to redeem those under the law? The divinity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, and the righteousness of Christ perfectly qualified him to be man's redeemer. If he had not been born of woman, if he had not been a man, then he could not have redeemed men. If he had not been a righteous man, he could not have redeemed unrighteous men. And if he had not been God the Son, he could not have redeemed men for God or make them the children of God. Paul says of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. The incarnation says that Jesus Christ is fully God, fully man. The greatest miracle in the Bible. Fully God, fully man. How could God become a man? Through the miracle of the virgin birth and the incarnation. What we looked at last week in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus Christ is that eternal Word. Why? Why did God become man? Why did God keep the law, or Jesus keep the law perfectly as a man? That He might redeem those under the law, that we would receive adoption as sons. There were two purposes in Jesus coming to earth. First of all, to redeem. Literally means it, mean, it means to buy out or to buy back. It was used of slaves that were purchased in the marketplace. They were redeemed. They were bought back through the payment of a required price. And these slaves bought were more than just set free. Then they received adoption as sons. There's a lot of legal matters to adoption. You, there's a process you have to go through. It can be very expensive. But when it's, once it's done, it is absolutely binding. Did you know that when, when a couple adopts a child, 
that they are told by the court that you are now the parents of this child. You can't back out. You can't change your mind. You can't get out of it. The child's birth certificate is changed at the state to reflect the name of the father and the mother. Regardless of what was on it originally, when the adoption takes place, it is changed. There is no second-class status to being adopted. It is a fully legal binding process. Now listen, Paul says here that Jesus Christ came to redeem us so that he might adopt us. He had to redeem us. He had to declare us righteous, impute the righteousness of Christ to us before he adopts us. How does Jesus redeem us? He died the death of a sinner. He paid the redemption price. Now, it is extraordinary enough that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that God sent him to redeem us, to declare us righteous. But he doesn't stop there. He adopts us. He makes us his children, that we might receive the adoption as sons. That, that's Christmas. God sends his son to make us new sons. That's what God has done for us. Paul says in Romans 8, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. That's the Christmas story. God sent his son, born of woman, born under the law, that he might redeem them that are under the law, that we might receive adoptions as sons. So now, here comes the Christmas spirit. Watch it. Verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Who is the Christmas spirit? The Holy Spirit of God. Do you have the Christmas spirit? Have you been redeemed? Have you been purchased from the slave market of sin? Have you trusted Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin and for the gift of eternal life? If so, you possess the Christmas spirit. Because when we believe on Jesus Christ, God sends the Holy Spirit into our hearts. What great comfort that is. God doesn't just tell us. He makes his home in us. Listen to what Jesus said in John 14. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. How do you know if God is your Father? How do I know that God is my Father? I have the adoption papers. It's right here. Right here are the adoption papers. Jesus Christ has done everything, met all the requirements in order for God to adopt me as his child. I'm quite sure no one else would adopt me, so God has, you see. Everyone else, you know, no. They, 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 they would not do that. 
But I have not only the adoption papers, I have a relationship with the Father. God sends His Spirit into my heart and gives me an intimate, close, personal relationship with the Father so that I cry, Abba. Abba is a word in Hebrew that means Father. But it is, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a diminutive word. It's a word that would be used of a small child that says Papa, one that's very, very tender, endearing. Uh, at Christmas time, uh, 41 years ago, I was pastoring a church up in uh, Granger County, Tennessee, and uh, I would be in the office of the church, and the phone would ring. And I'd pick the phone up, and I would say, Block Springs Baptist Church, and the voice on the other end, tiny little voice, would say, Daddy. And I would say, David, Daddy. That's all he said. That's the only word he had, Daddy. It was the sweetest word that I could possibly hear. I've known people through the years who said that they wanted their children to call them by their first name. I thought, what? Are you crazy? Everybody calls me a lot of things. Some of them not very pleasant. But only two people in the world call me daddy. My sons. A, A child says daddy or papa. Maybe when the child grows up, they don't say that anymore. I called my father daddy all my life. I thought it was a great privilege to do that. And now, God has sent His Holy Spirit into my heart that I may call God Father. You know that there's no other religion in the world that has God as Father? That's unheard of. It was unheard of in the Jewish world to call God Father, much less to call Him Daddy. That affectionate, endearing term of a child. The indwelling Holy Spirit is the subjective ministry that confirms the objective truth of Scripture. We have the Holy Spirit in our hearts. That's subjective. I know it because I know it. The objective truth is known because it says here in the Word, God sends His Spirit into our hearts so that we may call him Abba, Father. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, lives within believers. So then, Paul says in verse 7, you are no longer a slave, but a son, a child of God. We're heirs of God, and we should live like it. Uh, All the riches of God will one day be unfolded for the children of God. When you are tempted and allured by the cheap delights of this world, remember that all the glory of heaven is yours. It is yours because you are an heir of God. You are His child. And everything that we have in this world will not even begin to compare with the inheritance that is laid up for us in heaven.
So Paul is saying, because this is true, because you have the Christmas spirit, live like sons. Don't don't live like slaves. Live like those who have been redeemed. Live like those whom the Holy Spirit dwells in their hearts. Live like one who is worthy of the inheritance that has been laid up for us. Here is the true story and the true spirit of Christmas. The story of Christmas is that God sent His Son in the fullness of time, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. And to those who are redeemed, to those who have received the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, He then sends His Holy Spirit to dwell in their hearts. Redemption and adoption are God's actions. And that makes us responsible to live a life every day of repentance and faith. We live a life of repentance and faith not in order to be saved, but because we are saved. Because we have become the children of God. We're not hoping that God will do something for us. He already has. He has redeemed us. He has adopted us. And He has sent His Spirit to dwell in our hearts. In just a moment, we're going to stand and 